0: Hello, it's Basha Cummings here. I'm an editor at Tortoise, which is the home of Sweet Bobby, Hoaxed and many more award-winning investigative podcasts. I'm here to tell you about Tortoise Investigates, where we curate the best of our chart-topping investigations in one place. Everything from extraordinary tales of deception to a suspicious killing to one mother's decades-long fight with the police. Just search for Tortoise Investigates wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise.
2: David Boyd, stand up. It's a Tuesday afternoon in late May in a packed courtroom at Newcastle Crown Court. For the murder of Nikki Allen on the seventh of October of nineteen ninety-two, the sentence of the court is one of life imprisonment. You will serve a term of 29 the years... The judge, Mrs Justice Lambert, is sentencing David Boyd, a known child sex offender, for the murder of seven-year-old Nikki Allen nearly 31 years ago, in 1992. A further aggravating factor is the vicious and brutal nature of your attack. She sentences him to life in prison and rules that he must serve a minimum of 29 years. Boyd is now in his mid-50s. It seems unlikely he'll ever be freed. The jury had taken 90 minutes to reach a guilty verdict after a trial which lasted a month. Nonetheless, you are providing a statement in which you gave yourself a false alibi. I must, of course. Consider... There's normally tension on the press bench when the jury comes back, but not this time. As it filed in, the reporter from a local paper who had sketched out his copy on his phone typed guilty in a text to his newsroom and held his finger over the key poised to send when the verdict was read out there was uproar in the public gallery cries of yes and you bastard Nikki Allen's family punching the air shouting thank you to the jury our commitment has always been to establish who was responsible and to bring them to justice new forensic techniques has been key in this investigation in identifying David Boyd and the residents of Sunderland have also played their part in ensuring justice for Nikki and her family. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank each and every resident who provided us with their DNA. Without their help, today's conviction would not have
1: been possible.
2: On the steps of the court, Deputy Chief Constable Lisa Theaker, who led the investigation, paid tribute to Nikki's family. And praised the commitment of her team in tracking down David Boyd. It looks like a victory for Thika and her team, and for policing in general. But there's a different version to this story.
3: Started looking at Nicky's case when I knew things weren't right.
2: George Heron was—he looked
1: weak. He looked feeble. He looked pale, greasy hair, big glasses. He was kind of your stereotypical child murderer, if you like.
2: When I started reading the article, and I seen his face, I was like, "Oh my God, that's him that had grabbed me when I was when I was thirteen.
3: What's the point of the police force when we're doing all their jobs?
2: Sharon Henderson, Nikki's mother, has been trying to find her daughter's murderer for thirty years.
3: I needed to do myself because nobody's gone. To come out there, Sharon, now, and get justice for you, Ben. you have to go out there yourself and do it.
2: And yet the basic facts of the case are remarkably straightforward. David Boyd lived in the same block of flats as Sharon and her daughters, and three doors away from Nikki's grandparents, the place from where she first went missing. David Boyd was known to the police. He had a conviction for breach of the peace in 1986, after approaching four girls, aged 8 to 10, grabbing one and asking for a kiss. In the same year, he exposed himself three times to a woman. In 1987, he was again investigated for showing his genitals, this time to a 15-year-old girl. In both these last instances, the police recorded the incident, but took no further action. David Boyd is the kind of offender who should have been caught. So why wasn't he? Why did it take 26 years for the police to interview him as a suspect in Nikki's murder? What does Sharon's story tell us about Britain's police and the way they treat working-class women, in particular single mothers like Sharon? I'm Julie Bindle. From Tortoise, this is... Three doors down, a murder, a mother, and a 30-year investigation. Episode 1, Missing. I was visiting my mum and dad in Darlington in June 2006. I remember sitting in their backyard reading the local paper. The first thing that grabbed my attention on an inside page was a photograph of a woman kneeling by a child's grave. The headline read Mum's bid to dig up daughter. A mother has threatened to dig up her daughter's body in a bid to bring her killer to justice. I read the name of that blonde-haired woman kneeling by the graveside, Sharon Henderson. I was immediately drawn to her story. I wanted to meet her and find out what had happened for her to be threatening to dig up her own daughter's body. A few weeks later, we had dinner in a Chinese restaurant. Her blonde hair is tied back off her face, and there is a foreboding look in her dark blue eyes over special fried rice and sesame prawn toast, neither of which Sharon touched, and Diet Cokes. I got to know Sharon. Sharp and never missing a trick, she impressed me immediately. A woman who had clearly been underestimated and keenly aware of how and why she had been treated by those she named professionals. There's a steely determination to Sharon, which is apparent from when you first meet her. When you speak with her, she's the kind of person who doesn't fidget, who holds eye contact, and who tells you straight if she doesn't agree with you. Sharon told me about how she'd written in vain to the Queen, Prime Ministers, and members of the House of Lords, and anyone else she could think of that might help with Nikki's case. And she has one single focus to get justice for Nikki. Sharon speaks to Nikki every day. Nikki was a happy, mischievous child, with a toothy grin and shoulder-length light brown hair. She tells me about the personal toll her daughter's death has on her, how she struggles on occasions with her mental health, with excessive drinking and prescribed drugs. But she is determined to get justice. On that evening in 2006, in the Chinese restaurant, we had no idea that it would be another 17 years before there was a conviction. We've been regularly in touch during the intervening years. My partner, Harriet Wistrich has been Sharon's solicitor for that time too. Growing up in Sunderland in the tail end of the 1960s and 70s, Sharon didn't enjoy an easy life. I didn't have a mother growing up. I was brought up in care, uh, which I didn't mind
3: from three to 14. That's when I went to live in the guards. I wasn't brought up with a family. I came straight from care. You, you didn't know your future, that you're going to be a single parent. But we, we didn't have a sad life. We're, what
2: happy life? Sharon has said to me repeatedly that in all of the coverage of the death of her daughter, people often forget that before all this, they were a family. We're a happy little family. I'm definitely not a perfect mother.
3: Um, I I tried my best. I wasn't taught how to be a mother,
2: and right from wrong. I visit Sharon at her home, a small, neat terraced house in Roker, not far from the sea. I once recall her rolling a cigarette and her telling me about finding out that Lisa Thika, the officer in charge of the investigation, had taken part in the TV programme, Catch a Killer in an Hour.
1: The second the call comes in, the clock starts ticking. The police have an hour to catch a killer.
2: Which made her roar with laughter. Catch a killer in an hour? She started shaking her head and said, she can't even bloody catch a killer in 30 years. Another time she told me that somebody had come along to the victims' rights group that she was involved in. He'd witnessed a tragedy taking place, involving people he didn't know. Sharon paused and said, I suppose some people are so bored they pretend they're victims themselves to come and listen to all the stories and get a free cup of tea and a biscuit. In these moments, I saw the woman who was there before this tragedy happened. Dark, witty, but made vulnerable by events that she had no control over. Sunderland, 1992 is where this story takes place. It's a forgotten corner of Britain along with the rest of the northeast, an area that has never recovered from the recession under the Thatcher government. When the mining and shipbuilding industries disappeared,
1: we were just a workforce. If you think about it, go back, you know, a couple hundred years, the northeast was just a workforce. Get in the pits, get in the mines, and dig the coal, and then build the ships, and everything was was heavy work. This is Jeff Moon. For
2: decades, he's run the Welcome Tavern, a pub in the heart of the once thriving docks. Overlooking the docks is a working-class housing estate called the Garths, notorious bricked silhouettes in the east end of the city. Notorious because there's something of a no-go area for the police. Locals, in particular the men, prefer dealing with neighbour disputes and petty crime themselves. The Garth flats were four floors high and in three blocks that all faced onto a square centre. The flats had verandas, and parents would stand outside smoking and chatting to one another, while keeping an eye on their children playing in the communal area
1: below. Massive, I mean, community-like spirit within them, you know, by the, the, the very structure, the very shape of them. Everybody, you know, you were kind of looking at, at everybody's house. Many of Jeff's regulars lived on the Garth estate. There was a lot of families. So the Garth was always filled with kids. When I was a kid, like my me, one nana lived on one side, the other grandmother lived on the other side, and me great aunts all lived next down, and the other aunts lived further along. My mum's sister lived next door to her mum, so it was you could go house to house. All as a kid, it was great.
2: In one of the ground floor flats lived Nikki, her three sisters, and their mum Sharon. It's tea time on a school night. Sharon and Nikki go to see Sharon's father, who lives two floors above them. But Nikki is anxious to go home. You knew that she was wanting to go back to play with her sisters, basically. She was bored at your dad's.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, she didn't like the... He had the on, she didn't like the over. Nicky is scared of the sound of the vacuum cleaner. So she asks her mum if she can go home before her and see her sisters. Sharon watches her walk the 150 yards across the pathway and down the stairs, before she disappears from sight on the ground floor, where she would turn along the corridor and into her own flat. But she never arrives. Sharon's memory of the next few hours is hazy. I didn't have a clue what was
3: happening, really didn't. Everything was just, it's really
2: hard to explain. Sharon is frantic, She's going door-to-door asking each flat if they've seen Nicky. Her neighbours join in. Now, there was people out then. It was lively, people out looking then. It was already a dark autumn evening, but as the search continues, it's getting
1: late. 11, quarter past 11. Sometimes. So you'd call time? Oh, yeah, I was, I was, we were upstairs and we just looked out and was like, oh, dear me. And like I say, you could see people out with torches and stuff like that. And just says oh, the bands missing and I just says typically I hope the band's alright and whatever yeah. I mean it was like before
3: twelve when they when I'd like come back into where you goth after and then you you you're like really panicking and then the police has like said you can't move
2: from your door, Sharon. The block of flats opposite Sharon was known as Burley Garth.
3: Most of our friends was in Burley Garth, that was in the same class. So
2: she might have been there. Nikki and her school friends would play outside between Weirgarth, where she lived, and the facing block of flats. Well, that, that's what I thought
3: she was. And you know, that, you've got to give people time for like checking the bedrooms, checking all the beds and that. Um, and I had to stand at people's doors waiting for things
2: like that. People are out in slippers with torches. Word
1: spreads. That's one thing, having a tight community, news travels fast. We were upstairs and we just looked out and it was like, oh, dear me. You could see people out with torches and stuff like that. And just says, Oh, the band's missing. And and because it was night, it's like, you know. It happened that quick, people
3: just like come from neighbour.
2: The time goes on and Nikki still hasn't been found. Sharon is becoming hysterical with worry.
3: This was about two o'clock when I'm thinking this somebody's took her from the garth, from the stairs or the arch thinking of somebody in a car by then because everybody I knew, all our friends I'd been to all their houses and then people getting in touch, all the people that bands went to the school but didn't live in the Ghats, lived in the like areas and then people start to travel out um, and you, you, then the helicopter comes out and it just goes I could hear the helicopter on and I'm sure there was a, a news one there was one helicopter um I was driving was round the bend, and that's what they, they got the doctor. 'Cause I was screaming and shouting, uh, cos I wanted to get out right there I used to look for Nicky. And there was just this same voice on a on, uh, as if it was a recombra, and I know it was a copper on a mic, just shouting, Nick, you're not going to get wrong, your mum's waiting for you, your mum's waiting for you, at your grandos. The same things, over and over again, cos they thought you might have been frightened... Now if she'd been outside the garth and come back and seen all this like stuff going on in that and I heard another helicopter and somebody said that was a, um,
0: I don't know if use used them, them deals or press. It was half past nine at night when Nikki's mother told her to head down a flight of stairs back home from
2: her grandparents' flat. And you were obviously Sick with worry, you'd been given a sedative, presumably, when the doctor came round to keep you calm while the search went on. It was frightening. but I'm like a zombie.
3: you just sitting there, like, and just staring. Um, and that's all I remember, the helicopter, all the time. And then the next morning, I remember standing at the sink and it just seemed like, if I had to, like, draw a picture of it, it's like loads of ants. And that was the people in the car, me looking down just there was no space they were just all over the place people and then Joan came in with the court now how did the place not spot the court I've been took to that place where the court was is this Nikki's coat that she I came in I coat and
2: shouldn't... shoes Joan found Nikki's coat and shoes well a lad,
3: a lad did and they picked it up and Joan carried it to the door and when I look back
2: how did the place miss that I cannot understand this was just the beginning of the police's mishandling of the case. Sharon's next memory is in a hospital ward. I got to like to the hospital then. It was awful lame. And you were taken away in an ambulance because you realised something had gone horribly wrong. Do you remember what happened next?
3: I went in the police wanted to speak to um, my stepmom and my dad. I was still like in like a deer's thing. The poor is in a little room. I was just sat there like a zombie on the bed. So the form went. And of all the people at the to tell me some my pam was dead
2: was my real mum. Vina is Sharon's birth mother. But Sharon did not see her as a mother figure. The two had never been close. But it's her birth mother who gives Sharon the news that her own daughter, Nikki. Has been murdered. I just seen
3: all oh, these graves of people outside the building, and I knew straight. I oh, went is that where they found Nicky, and David went. Hey, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just, oh shit! And that, i had to stop the car. And I was trying to get out, and I kicking the doors and that. And then the police came, and it was them that wanted to not break the news to us that Vina had already told figured, you because. Everybody uh, said the firemen carrying Nicky out the back over door. course. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the news
0: is overwhelming. Nikki's tiny body had been found in the derelict old exchange building, close to the Weir Garth flats where she disappeared from the previous night. After hundreds had searched all night, Nikki's red shoes and purple coat were recovered outside the old exchange. A short time later, a young teenager ran hysterically from the building after going in and finding Nikki's body. Nikki was hit, hurt, and bundled through a boarded up back window, her head beaten with a brick, stabbed more than 30 times, and dragged dead down into the far corner of the basement and left. Well, until late this afternoon, they were continuing their search in and around the old exchange buildings. They're looking for what they've described as the blunt instrument that they believe was used to carry out this murder.
2: The moment Nicky's body was found, Sharon's life shattered. Basically, my words fucked up from them finding our body.
1: Once things started to settle down and and the behaviour of certain individuals and stuff like that, and people soon backed away, but the one thing that didn't falter was the very fact that there was a child that was murdered. That, if anything, kept it just about, you know, sort of floating. Um, what do you mean, kept what about floating? The, the support, if you like. Right.
2: Whatever what Jeff is speaking there, about here just... is just the start of what began to unravel with Nikki's case. Some people turned against Sharon when rumours began to spread about where she was on the night of the murder. People... Years
3: ago, everybody believed the media, everybody believed the police. And what did they believe, though? Rumours that I was out in a pub or Nicky was penny for the guy in or I was up the team drinking and... And poor me was standing in the middle of the garth in me dressing and going, and now I remained shape for me, Ben. I'm so glad there was all them witnesses I'd seen us when I was going door-to-door looking for Nicky. I didn't give a shit about rumours, but I believed more people would have come forward if the police had worked properly on the case instead of no
2: doubt. Some people might have come forward by now. The rumours that Sharon is speaking about are not just local hearsay. They were lies. And they were spread by the very people who should have been investigating the case. I want to know why it took the police 30 years to find the man who killed Nikki. In the next episode... We'll hear how the 24 hours after Nikki went missing were crucial in the investigation.
1: The cop in charge was br- was briefing the press that Nikki was outside the Boar's Head begging for pennies for Halloween. That's what she was supposed to have been doing. That's where she was supposed to have been abducted from.
2: Thanks for listening. New episodes of Three Doors Down will be released every Tuesday. You can get early access to this and other tortoise series and ad-free listening by subscribing to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts. Or for the best tortoise listening experience, curated by our journalists, download the Tortoise app. And please leave ratings and reviews. It really helps. This series was reported by me, Julie Bindle. It was written by me and Joanna Humphreys. The producer was Joanna Humphreys. The narrative editor was Gary Marshall. The sound design and original theme is by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer was Jasper Corbett.
0: Tortoise.